Well, good morning, church. Uh, I'm Mike. I'm the pastor, and I love worshiping with you all. We are in the midst of a series where we're studying the letter to the Romans, and we're doing it rather quickly. And our goal with this series is to get the big ideas, the big movements that Paul expresses in this really um, famous, history-changing letter, uh, so that believers, you would be able to pass along the concepts that are here in a way that might make sense to the people that we're praying for. And if you're not a believer, my hope is that this makes some semblance of sense to you as well. And um, I would always welcome feedback if it just still sounds like I'm speaking another language. So today we are in the section of Romans that is chapters 6 and 7. And so our reading will be a few snippets from those two chapters. Um, so we'll be jumping in order through Romans 6 and 7, but not reading the whole thing. So now hear a reading from Romans chapters 6 and 7. What shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not present your members to sin as instruments to be used for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members to God as instruments to be used for righteousness. For sin will have no mastery over you because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were entrusted to, and having been freed from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. Certainly, I would not have known sin except through the law. For indeed, I would not have known what it means to desire something belonging to someone else if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but with the coming of the commandment, sin became alive and I died. So I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it I died. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, 
so that it would be shown to be sin produced death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For I don't understand what I am doing, for I do not do what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. So I find the law that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, speak to us in this moment about your word. Lord, we need your help, not only to understand your word, but for those of us who are compelled to live according to your righteousness, we need your help, Lord, and we struggle. We struggle. So, Lord, would you pour out your mercy, your grace, your spirit, your power on us as we engage with your word for the next little bit, and as we try to live it out this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I've just read a few snippets to you, cut from a longer portion, which was cut from the whole of a pretty long letter, Paul's letter to the Romans. I hope it's obvious that these portions were not meant to stand alone. In fact, even as I was reading it, I was thinking, this would be awfully confusing if you haven't heard anything before or seen what's coming afterward. Uh, even the opening line where, where this passage starts is a question, what shall we say then? Uh, it's the response that Paul anticipates based on what he just said in the part that we looked at last week in chapter 5. And his answer to that question leads him to anticipate another question, which leads him to another and leads to another. In a sense, in other words, this portion of the letter to the Romans is Paul staging an investigation into his claims that he expects almost any of his first readers to ask, especially those who understand Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah and therefore think of themselves as a new kind of Jews, part of the chosen people who trace their line back to Abraham. He's doing an FAQ here, frequently asked questions. That's what chapters 6 and 7 are. That's not exactly right, but, but that's a pretty good way to think about it. Uh, of course, he uses those questions to keep advancing the big ideas that he's advancing in his letter. Okay. So that's kind of what it is. But I need to be honest. I find these chapters constantly disorienting. They are, I, I have tried to teach this several times. Um, in fact, years and years ago, more than a decade ago, we taught, we, we went through Romans as a church. So this is my first time repeating a book uh, in, you know, in 18 years of being a pastor. But um, uh 
I, I went through it really slow and studied really hard back then. I took a seminary class on Romans, just on the letter to the Romans. I even wrote my own translation from the Greek. It's pitiful, but I did it. It was an assignment, so I did it, um, and I passed. Uh, and yet, after all of that study, these chapters, when I come to them, especially thinking, I'm going to try to teach this to people, I get dizzy in these chapters, and that's fairly bad news for you today, especially if my goal is to distill these concepts so that you would understand them well enough to pass them along to someone else. Whew. But let's do our best. These two chapters can be outlined in several ways, and I find it fairly helpful to track with these questions that Paul gives. You know, the, the questions all have, the, here, here's the four questions. Oops. Yeah, I don't know how to fix the background, but you do. So there they, nope, there they are. Yes. So these are the four questions that go through. And all throughout, uh, every time he asks one of these questions, he answers the same way. Here's the next slide. Here's the Greek. Meganoita. Meganoita. Danny remembers that from a decade ago. You always remind me of that. Meganoita. This is really the strongest way to say no. Our translation says absolutely not. You could probably come up with more colorful ways to say it. Just envision dog owners. If you have just pulled the Thanksgiving turkey out of the oven and put it on the counter and walked away and you turn back and you see your dog climbing up to the counter, the whatever you would say to get the dog not to bite the turkey, that is what meganoita is. Like, what? No, whoa, no. Okay, so that's, that's it. All right. Um, so that's his answer to these questions, all right? And, and we'll get into the questions a bit at the end of this sermon. So when I get back to the questions, it's sweet relief for you. That means we're almost done with the sermon. Um, but before we actually get into the questions, I want to take a stab at why those questions even needed to be asked. All right. Um, so in classic theological terms, the previous chapters, chapters three, four, and five of Romans, describe this concept called justification. Paul passionately explains God's free gift of righteousness and how that gift was given to us, not because of anything we did, but through the faithfulness, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. All right? So we've been using this this picture to kind of present the big story of Christianity and using Romans to explain it. It's, it's this picture. So the purple circle is everything as it was intended to be. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They're all together. They're synchronized perfectly. It's all going well. Adam and Eve, you know, decided they wanted to do things on their own. So they were con convinced that it would be better, that they could be equal with God if they disobeyed. And so they did. And the heavens and the earth, so to speak, were, were split apart and divided. That's the red and the blue circles. Again, not political. It's just red and blue add up to purple when you're mixing paint. Okay. So that's, I'm not trying to say anything political. I uh, know, but please vote, you know, this week. Um, 
So, all right, they're divided, heaven and earth. That's the split. And then, of course, we've presented the chapters 3, 4, and 5, tell the story of Jesus invading our creation and offering this gift, bringing heaven back to earth. Repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's, that's the point of chapter 4. Chapter 5 celebrates that gift. It celebrates it. Though through the gift of Christ's righteousness in chapter 5, he says, believers have peace and joy and hope even in suffering. And it makes sense if you think about it. Christ died for the unrighteous. He's reconciled us to God. Of course, we would, if you, if you fully accept that and believe that and embody that, it's going to change the way you look at the rest of life. But there's more in chapter 5. The chapter ends with this description of the total takeover of grace. The total conquest of grace. Really getting us back to the purple circle. Back to where it's like, you know, if, if all died through Adam's sin, there's this picture of everything being restored and perfected through Jesus' righteousness. In fact, built back better than it ever could have been before. He doesn't merely undo the effects of sin. He tears them down in order to restore and renew a glorious new reality for all who believe. The, the global spread of sin is nothing compared to the global spread of righteousness, the global restoration. He effectively, Paul looks ahead to see the culmination of all things. The kingdom has taken over heaven on earth, God's perfect intended design, everything restored. And there's another theological term we use to describe getting back to the purple circle. Glorification. Of course, we know what the word glorification means. Like, everything's as good as it could possibly be. But don't forget the news in the midst of all that. Paul announced that Jesus is king. In chapter 5, he says Jesus will eventually rule over everything and everything will be made new. What's more, none of it happens on account of our works. In fact, working for these gifts completely removes us from them. It's like someone at home is trying to give you this big generous gift while you're running out to the store trying to buy it. You're not even in the right place to receive it. Working for it puts us on a different plane than just receiving the gift. He goes so far as to say at the end of chapter 5 that our very inability to earn the gift only exaggerates what a gift it is. So he says this, uh, next slide, where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. So we asked the question last week, how do we get in? The answer was, only Jesus gets us in. The weaker and more broken we are, the more his power is put on display in our lives. That's good news. His grace rushes toward us like water uh, rushing to the lowest place, right? That's, that's what he does. He describes this grace as a glorious, conquering, fruitful grace, one that leads to a life of peace, hope, and joy no matter what. Chapter 5 was a good chapter, like, let's, let's end it there. That's great. Good news about the good news. That's what chapter 5 was. It's so good. Well, why does he need to pause and clarify his points? My, opt my opportunistic heart knows why, and maybe your heart knows why too. 
because we see this phrase. Sorry, I'll point where you can see it. We see this phrase, and our hearts say, party on, man. Like, I can do whatever I want, and grace will go even bigger. You know, one philosopher said, God will forgive me. That's his job, right? Like, that's, that's where we could go with this idea. Paul, are you inviting me to sin as much as possible in order to give God's grace a chance to shine? And, 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 and in the midst of that, are you throwing away the holy law of the Jewish people in one fell swoop? Those are the questions that Paul asks in these chapters. But those questions would be moot. Remember, I'm trying to explain why we needed to ask those questions. Those questions would be moot. We wouldn't need them if chapter 5 happened instantly and perfectly in every believer's life. No one would ask the questions even early on, when the, when the news about Jesus is spreading and people are coming to believe that he's the Messiah and they're having encounters with the Holy Spirit and all of these amazing things that are described in the book of Acts are happening, no one would wonder if they needed, like if Paul was tossing out the law, if every single person who came to believe was instantly perfect, right? We would, it would just be like, of course, this is the way. You know, the law is being fulfilled in everyone's lives. No one is even worrying about it. If people loved God with their whole being and loved their neighbor just as, as much as they loved themselves without fail, no one would wonder if, if the law should, is being tossed out. The reason Paul has to do this question and answer session is the same reason these chapters are always hard for me to understand. Because the victory is not obvious right now. The takeover is not complete. Because I still struggle with sin. Because the Christian communities that are described in the Bible and all throughout history still show favoritism, abuse our power, abuse the grace we preach. We're driven by greed, lust, fear, and more. The very people who say we're representing Jesus. In fact, we wouldn't have a New Testament we wouldn't if the, if the news about Jesus just instantly, perfectly transformed everyone who believed it. We wouldn't need it. it. It would just be happening. The letters are dealing with the problems. They're necessary because we're in this confusing gap between justification and glorification. There's this space in between. You know it and I know it. And the non-believers who observe your life know it. The questions are there because sin remains. And that fact threatens to call the whole enterprise of Jesus' kingdom into question. Brennan Manning is an author who grasped both the wonder of grace and the slavery of sin better than most. It was really... Um, because of his alcoholism that he died. And he wrote this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, this question has always been a part of, well, for most of my life has been a part of sort of my 
um, this quote, I mean, has been a part of my sort of awareness of things because it was made popular for Christians in my generation by the band DC Talk. Any DC Talk fans? Come on. Yeah. Okay. So they have a song and it opens with Brennan Manning saying this quote. The song is not a song about evangelism or about getting, you know, convincing the atheists. The song is entitled, What If I Stumble? What if I fall? You know, like, they're even, it's, I, I, I wasn't tuned to this as a teenager, but they're struggling with this thing of like, am I just writing these songs to pay my bills? You know, like, are my motives even in the right place? What if I stumble? What if I make a fool of us all? Will I ruin everything? Well, we've been ruining everything for a long time. My neighbor is a history professor at Metro State. Her area of expertise is the Crusades. This is the term, if you don't know what I mean, this is the term used by various popes from the 11th to the 14th centuries to call European Christians to arms, mostly against various Muslim groups who had taken control of Jerusalem and other edges of the empire. It was just a massive clash of empires. They're both fighting, to, you know, they're both trying to spread and take the land from each other. But the Crusades are not, they're, they're not, so they're not just one battle or one war. It's like many different phases and, and leaders and popes and whatever. They are centuries of conflict back and forth between Christians and Muslims who were both fighting for what they believed would be spiritual purity in the world. But the church, which at different times was more politically powerful than any nation state in Europe during the Crusades, they went on to crusade against other groups too. Sometimes they crusaded against the Jews. Sometimes they would burn down entire towns where they believed heretical Christian ideas were being fostered and kill everyone. I mean, it is striking. So my neighbor knows more than I'll never know about a fairly ugly period of Christian history, about what Christians do when we have political power, how we've tried to keep it, protect it, and get more of it. So-called followers of the one who died for his enemies, went to war to kill theirs. My neighbor is not a follower of Jesus. And based on her expertise, it's hard to blame her. Of course, she could be a journalist writing on the abuses of church leaders in the present. She could be a horrified civilian uh, from anywhere in the world who saw images of a mob carrying crosses and pictures of Jesus breaking into the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. She could just be my neighbor, paying attention to me. How I use my time and money, how I handle stress, how I treat natural resources, whatever else. What would she see if she saw you, my very brilliant historian neighbor. Maybe some of you need to get more personal. You yourself observe your own life and wonder, do I really believe? Because I sure don't act like it. You need these questions as much as my neighbor. The basic explanation is that we're in this in-between time where Jesus' righteous takeover isn't yet 
complete, where, we're, where we've been set free from sin, but we're still able to choose it. We've been in this weird in-between phase for 2,000 years, and that's a long time. That's why Romans 6 and 7 are so important and so hard, because they address that tension. I'm not sure how to represent that tension with the circles, all right? I've been illustrating the good news about Jesus with the color purple. Um, go to the next, all right? So there's the color purple in the middle, all right? Um, you know, that's, that's heaven coming back and transforming earth. Uh, that's what chapters 4 and 5 described. They describe how that purple is going to take over and redeem everything uh, where it all becomes purple. But maybe our picture would be more accurate like this. Next slide. You know, it's not really purple yet. It's like red and blue mixing, not mixing together. It's spotty. It's got holes in it. You know, these circles are not just about the story of the whole world. They're about you. Next slide. This is you. Are you living in your self-sufficient Ways enslaved to sin, or are you submitted to King Jesus, the Lordship of Christ? Sorry about my handwriting there. Enslaved to righteousness. There's a story about us. How this plays out in our own lives. We were separated from God. The perfect word of work of Jesus is applied to our hearts through the Spirit. The kingdom has invaded our lives. It's total grace. The story is that we've been defeated, transformed. And that brings us back to the four questions. Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? Shall we sin because we're not under law, be under, but under grace? Is the law sin to that which is good then become death to me? That's what Paul's wrestling with in these chapters. And he answers, what's the Greek? Meganoita. Get off the counter. To each one, he answers that to each one of these questions, and then he tries to explain himself. He gives some stark illustrations about this, you know, and, and I'm just going to run through them quick. The first one is life and death. Why, if you've been, a ma if you've been made alive, would you keep, I know this is, this is where it gets confusing, would you keep living like you're dead? You know, you're alive, live like you're alive, he says. Then he uses the idea of servants and masters. Why, if you've been liberated from an abusive master, would you continue to serve that abusive master? You're now servants of Christ. But don't you know that sin is always happy to enslave you when you offer yourself to it? It's always happy to have you back. That's what he says. Even in, that, in the midst of that servants and masters thing, he talks about like the mastery of an instrument, whether it's someone working with tools or a musical instrument. You know, whoever you give yourself to is who's going to play you, so to speak. The next image he gives in chapter 7 is marriage. And he, he, he describes us as being sort of married to the law and that creating sin and death in our lives. But then he says, why, if your marriage to the law ended with death, particularly the death of Jesus, would you still act like you're married? That, that's, what, that's what he's getting at throughout all of these chapters. And his, his logic makes sense. Jesus didn't free us from bondage to disobedience so that we could remain disobedient. He brought us to himself, not 
not freeing us to run away from them again. We know we were in bondage because the law helped us to see it. It exposed the fact that our sin was controlling us. And by God's grace, the law continues to do that. So, all right, I've said all of this and you may feel a bit stuck. Like, all right, tell me something I don't know just from my own life. Is there any hope? Well, in these chapters, Paul says there's so much hope. Even when you're submitting yourself as a slave to sin, the law continues to do its good work. It continues to show you like that is going to lead to your death. In fact, it may work even better and harder and more effectively for those who have been brought to life in Christ. It shows us where we're broken, where we're not submitted to him. He uses the idea of coveting or covetousness. Covetousness is a life-destroying malady. It's miserable in our lives. It's miserable to be constantly focused on what you don't have, what someone else does, to want it so much. The, the, the gift of the law is that it shines a light on that. When we're slaves to sin, our, our covetousness revels in the slavery the law puts it in proper light. The sin is shown to be death. All right? And covetousness is a, such a horrifically appropriate example here. Why? It's a great way to describe the original sin. The original deadly disease of Adam and Eve. They were overtaken by a desire for that which wasn't rightfully theirs. They wanted equality with God. They wanted independence. It's not just the fruit. It's what they thought they would become. The law is the x-ray that shows that the bone is broken. It doesn't necessarily fix it, but it shows that it's broken. It flips on the lights and shows the utter decay, the mess of this way of life. Covetousness is the very opposite of the faith that Paul is describing. Because the faith he's describing is the joyful, content reception of a gift that's been actually given to you. So the final paragraphs of this section of Romans are among the more famous in the whole letter. They're also, you know, the, to bore you with a little bit of uh, scholarly debate, they're also the subject of a lot of debate. As a matter of fact, there will be a debate on the last paragraph of Romans 7 at Denver Seminary in like two weeks, just like... Ah, the timing was bad for this sermon, but, you know, I'm going to go and find out how I was wrong. All right. So here's, here's why they're famous and debated. Paul's gone to Great Lakes to say things like, sin will have no mastery over you because you're not under law, but under grace. And thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart and having been freed from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Then at the end of all of this, Paul's tone changes. Though he does it almost nowhere else in the letter, he starts talking about himself with covetousness and then the law in general. He muddies the whole message with this confession. I'm going to read it to you. It's not on the slides. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold into slavery to sin. I don't understand what I'm doing, for I do not do what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. 
But if I do what I don't want, I agree that the law is good. But now it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For I want to do the good, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the very evil that I do not want. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. Why is this debated? Some some people who read Paul and everything else that he's presenting in Romans say, there's no way he could be this hopeless with this sin after presenting the gospel. They're like, he's already said we're slaves. We've been freed from that slavery for this one. There's no way. All right, it's, you know, even a hundred years after Paul wrote it, the first commentators on Romans, like Origen, were saying, Paul's like imagining someone else. He's imagining his life before Christ. But then, you know, guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin, you know, more recently, they said it seems pretty obvious that he is talking about himself to illustrate the whole thing he's been talking about. it. And I don't actually know for sure. I have an opinion. What I do know is that no words of Paul in anything that Paul writes, nothing that he writes is more familiar to me than those verses that I just read to you, right? And maybe that's the case for you too. I don't know, I don't get the way, I mean, I wanna live this way, but I keep living that way. You feel like a slave, you know, why did I do that? How could I have forgotten that? Why did I react like that? It's why these chapters are so hard to understand. We want to present ourselves as an obedient slave to Christ, but we don't again and again. We present ourselves as slaves to ourselves, to our desires. All right, even those scholars who think Paul couldn't possibly be talking about himself after he knows Jesus would agree that Paul argues all over this letter and all over the rest of his letters how fruitless it is to try to earn the righteousness that's been given to us as a gift. I am unspiritual, Paul says. That's right, I over here, attempting to do it on my own. I alone am unspiritual. I, on my own, keep doing what I don't want to do. I, on my own, know what I want to do, but I can't do it without help. The whole argument ends where it began. This is not a story of me getting better. It's not. It's a story of Jesus rescuing me. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, thanks be to God who sent King Jesus, the conqueror. Yet again, the answer is not to figure out how to do it better, but to surrender a little bit more of your life, a little bit more, to start each day a little bit more, a surrender again. I failed yesterday, surrender again this morning. That is the hope and the message. After all, he's a king who died to save his enemies. That's the message we proclaim. And that's what our lives display, you guys. It was on the very night that Jesus was betrayed. When he took the bread, and having given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take this and eat. Do this in, in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way after supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The death that we deserved, the death that we desperately need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the gift of grace. And Lord, our, our lives today, our lives this afternoon will make this confusing. We will muddy the waters. It's all neat and tidy in this moment, maybe. But then we'll muddy it again. Let that be an invitation for us to come back to you, repenting and confessing and surrendering again. And so, Lord, we do that as we come to the table today, sur submitting to a king who conquers not by taking control of us, but by dying for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, church, I would invite you to come as we sing and receive the, the bread, which is the body of Christ given for you, and dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's worship together as we come.